Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith of the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China and the World. Today we're bringing you an emergency podcast about the coronavirus named COVID-19, which has brought China to a standstill. So far, almost seventy thousand people have been infected in China, with just under one thousand eight hundred deaths, if official statistics are to be believed. Today we're going to pass what kind of political and economic fallout this is having, and we're going to address the question everyone's asking: Could this be China's Chernobyl? Today we're fantastically lucky to have an all-star panel. We're joined from California by Orville Shell, the Arthur Ross Director of the Center for U.S.-China Relations at the Asia Society. From Singapore by Sean Roche, the Chief Asia-Pacific Economist at Standard and Poor's, and straight from Ground Zero in Wuhan by the New York Times indefatigable Chris Buckley, recently described by the Global Times as anti-human for his reporting on the virus. So, Chris, let's start with you. I mean, we've been hearing of this groundswell of anger for the lateness of the government response in China, particularly after the death of Dr. Li Wenliang, who tried to publicise the new virus and been detained. Now we're hearing a lot about China being on this war footing. I mean, what is the mood like in Wuhan, where you are now? The mood is a, is a a real flux, a mosaic of emotions and. Certainly, when you talk to people on the street here, there is a lot of anger about mismanagement by the government that allowed the virus to slip out of control, and also frustration with aspects of how the city has been managed since then.、Uh, along with that, though, there's there's a lot of、uh, despondency among quite a lot of people as well, and a desire simply to get through the next few weeks. You know,、uh, life is very frightening for people here because. You know, the the death toll、uh, keeps up every day. People read the numbers, people see the notices around their neighbourhoods about people who've been infected, and that infects people with a great deal of anxiety as well. And you have to remember that most people are spending the great majority of their days inside their homes as well. So, insofar as they're angry or despondent or any other emotion, it it's not something that you necessarily see see expressed on the streets. One thing I did see yesterday when I went out for a while was I saw some political graffiti for the first time here, and it was a、uh, somebody had been walking down the street saying, "Good will be repaid with good, evil will be repaid with evil." It's not that we won't do anything; it's just not that the time isn't ripe. 不是不做，就是时间没到 And I, I think that was actually quite a very good summing up of how people feel. Insofar as they do have anger with the government, that's going to express itself about what happens after this crisis passes. I think. I mean, thinking about that anxiety and anger, Chris, we're seeing all these videos and accounts coming out from Wuhan of corpses piling up in hospitals and ambulances, of medics not being allowed to go home,、uh, of people with fevers unable to get treatment.、Um, it seems this sort of has the hallmarks of a massive government、uh, cover-up. But from what you're able to observe on the ground, how reliable are these accounts? Ah,、uh, the first thing to say is it's it's a very big city of eleven million, of course, and now we're talking about a very large epidemic area across Hubei. A- a- any effort to summarise what's happening across that whole area is very difficult. 
I do think some of the accounts of, I don't know, body bags piling up in hospitals and so on, I would certainly want to see more documentation before I believe those particular accounts. I, I think in general what we have seen is that the provincial and city leadership in particular uh, from January onward when the virus began to slip out of control in Wuhan has always been trying to play catch-up in terms of its policies and responses to the spread of the coronavirus and all of the problems it, it created. And in that process of catch-up, there's always been this problem of pushing through policies and measures that many people, not least the government itself, were unprepared for. And that creates all sorts of additional complications that then create an additional wave of measures. So I've seen that, for example, with this effort to push people into isolated observation in hotels, when quite clearly a lot of those hotels weren't prepared to take so many people, the medical staff weren't available, and that's created tremendous anxiety and frustration for families, and it does seem in some cases unnecessary deaths as well. So I think there are examples of like that where the government is just simply trying to catch up and then it, that creates um, all sorts of unexpected problems that then create a new wave of anxiety among residents here. So Orville Shell, you've written about how the virus has stripped President Xi Jinping of his air of invincibility, calling into question his latter-day mandate of heaven, I mean, particularly as the natural disaster was made worse by human failure. I mean, how serious do you think the political threat is to him now? Well, I do think that he had uh, confected around himself uh, an aura of uh, being somewhat uh, indestructible and invincible. Uh, and uh, there are, as I think anyone who spent much time in China knows, a kind of all sorts of deeply held uh, sort of suspicious modalities about uh, leadership and a kind of a millenarian sense sometimes that when legitimacy begins to slide or things happen that, that signal some portent of, a, of, of heavenly consequences, a leader can, uh, you know, lose his, uh, his, that, that very sense that is so important to Xi of being invincible. And I think, uh, you know, there seems to be some of that happening with the way criticism now is raging up. People uh, having this sense that, you know, they may be at the end of something, a kind of a fin de siècle, almost end of dynasty uh, feeling uh, about much of what's happening. I don't want to overdo this, but I, I do want to say that for a, a leader who's depended so much on control, to now be confronting that's so uncontrollable, uh, a virus that's so uncontrollable, an enemy that's so uncontrollable, is a, is a daunting prospect and threatens, I think, to put a great dent into one of the things that, that enabled him to uh, rule as convincingly as he has. Well, one dent, I guess we could maybe put some numbers on. Um, Sean Roche, on, on the economic front, um, just how bad do you think the hit to Chinese GDP is going to be, um, given the fact everything seems to be at a standstill? I mean, Beijing itself was only predicting around about 6% growth. Um, and earlier in the month, the uh, Chinese government think tank predicted a 1% hit to GDP. Um, can you put some numbers on it? What uh, What is Standard & Poor's predicting right now for Chinese GDP? Yeah, so... So this year, we, we do expect quite a hard blow to the economy. Um, we're expecting growth actually to come in about 5%, which is you know a good way below where we think 
the government was going to be setting its growth target at around 6% for 2020. Um, the good news, though, is that most, much of this effect we think is going to be uh, seen in the first and second quarters, assuming, of course, that the virus is contained around March or April, which is our current assumption based on, on what the specialist opinion is. I think the key point here is, first of all, we do expect this to be temporary and all of these losses to be broadly recouped by the end of next year. So China's economy will be employing as many people, producing as much output uh, by the end of next year as it would have done in the absence of the virus. But at the same time, the risks are that this drags on through the summer. And if that were to happen, uh, the costs could get uh, very, very large indeed. In fact, we think there are exponential costs to each month of delay of, of normalization of economic activity. And I'm wondering what that must feel like on the ground, Chris, because there don't seem to be, you know, there seem to be entire massive cities that are effectively ghost cities and people must be beginning to really fear for their, you know, livelihoods, businesses must be starting to go under. I mean, what are people telling you? It, it is true if, if you encounter the people on the street here, especially if they're running a business or if they're migrant workers, Often their sharpest anxieties are not just about the coronavirus itself, but about their future livelihood. Many people have been effectively locked out of their work for, for several weeks now, and that's probably going to continue for several weeks as well. If you're running a business, especially a business in the consumer service sector, then you can't be sure that you'll be able to attract customers back when all of this ends. So there's immense complications for people in Hubei province in particular. I guess part of what Sean is getting to, though, is that there's also tremendous resilience among people. And once the epidemic passes, it's going to take a long while for Hubei to recover to something like normal. I suspect that the rest of the country is probably going to recover more quickly. I mean, Sean, um, talking about your, you suggest that there might be an exponential effect if, if things drag on. And, and um, Chris is saying, you know, obviously it will have a bigger effect on um, Hubei province. But there's, there's structurally, there's a lot of local government debt out there. I mean, is this the sort of thing you, you think could get exponential if things drag on? Because, uh, you know, people are at their limit debt wise. Um, or do you think it's quite possible the government, if it drags on, will go for another big stimulus package to, uh, to sort of get things back on track and kick the can down the road? I think debt is, is key here, actually, in terms of when we think about what the, the longer-run effects of this might be if it drags on. Um, so the longer this continues, the more it's going to impede cash flow uh, for Chinese corporates. And, and here, then, we have to start getting into the detail of certain sectors because we know certain sectors... Um, are highly indebted and are cash flow stressed whenever the economy slows. And the most obvious example here is the property sector. There are uh, thousands of property developers in China that rely on fairly buoyant sales activity in the second and third quarters of the year when people uh, go back to sales developments after the Chinese New Year. And right now that's not happening. And the longer that these developers have to live with, with no sales, um, the more cash flow stress they will be. And as you mentioned, that will have a broader impact, including on local governments, because uh, local governments raise a lot of their revenue from selling land to developers, and developers can only buy it if they have the funding. So this, this is all very interconnected, and, and debt plays a, a central role. What will policymakers do with stimulus? We think they'll, they'll be quite restrained. 
Um, I know markets continually expect the Chinese government to come out and pump the economy every time it slows, but that's not been the experience over the last two or three years. Uh, this is a different situation, of course, but the problem with the a policy stimulus at this point is, first of all, the timing is really hard to get right. It might hit the economy just as conditions are recovering and might cause an overshooting and could worsen all of the debt problems that we see. Um, the effects could be limited. Uh, just because you're cutting interest rates and taxes doesn't mean that households are suddenly going to leave their homes um, and not worry too much about being infected because simply taxes are lower. I think, you know, the, the concerns that among consumers that Chris pointed to are very real. And thirdly, too much stimulus does have long-term costs. It is going to lead to higher debt levels, and that restrains the ability of China to respond to future crises. So these are all factors we think that will mean, while we will, of course, see stimulus, it's going to be fairly restrained uh, in this episode. And you know, there's another element which I, I think one can sense here in the United States, and that is preceding the whole virus crisis. There was a whole process of decoupling going on. And, of course, there was much debate about its wisdom and how far it should go, and, and uh, people were thrashing around on trying to figure out the right equation there. However, what the virus epidemic has done is, in effect, it's taking those judgments out of the hands of policymakers, and it has decoupling China from the world so that nobody gets to yay or nay it. And I think that we should watch very carefully at that whole phenomenon because when things get back in order again and the epidemic finally does get brought under control in China, it may be that China has decoupled to a considerable extent from world markets and that those markets have discovered that, well, they can muddle along or get along or whatever without China. And I think it may be very difficult to restore any sort of status quo ante at that point. So we may end up finding that there is a, a, a de facto decoupling going on because of the epidemic that is sort of carrying to extremes the uh, tendency that was already uh, moving forward, and not just in the United States, but Australia, Europe, Japan. So that's worth watching. I, I was going to ask you, Oval, because it does seem as if some of the commentary that's now emerging about China's handling of the virus is really highlighting its unreliability as an international partner, you know, from the botched response to the complete lack of transparency. I mean, do you think that that kind of sense is going to help accelerate that decoupling that you've been talking about? As I say, it's worth watching. Uh, it's interesting to note that at the Munich Security Council, you had all of these Americans, including Nancy Pelosi. So you have Republicans and Democrats alike, all sort of weighing in on the advisability of staying clear from companies like Huawei. So that's a form of decoupling right there. So I think this viral epidemic comes precisely at the worst possible time for people who are opposed to decoupling because it in effect is making that process move much more rapidly than it ever would have, which was rapid enough, I might say. So it's almost as if we have a, you know, to get back to this notion of the mandate of heaven, a kind of cosmic confirmation of a, a process that was already underway, just forcing everybody's hand, driving them apart in a way, which we just don't know whether it'll ever be able to sort of 
put Humpty Dumpty back together again uh, when it ends. Like I guess one one fix you can see being applied to Orville is um, the, the old fashioned blame the local officials um, approach and. I think it was interesting, Chris Porton added one of his reports that the mayor of Wuhan on the way out very pointedly said that um, provincial governments weren't able to um, uh, declare an epidemic, only the central government could. Um, I mean, is this China's Chernobyl where the disaster lays bare to the, the population, the systemic failures, um, not just at the bottom, but also at the top? Well, if you didn't have uh, social media, perhaps Xi Jinping could get away with the old ruse of, you know, stringing up some local officials. But I don't think that's going to be quite as effective in this case. Uh, there's too much sort of volcanic uh, uh, unrest and anger and disaffection uh, to, for people to be mollified by such a transparent uh, strategy. I think one element that probably could be spelled out a little bit more is that rightly or wrongly to his benefit or not we don't know but it's certainly true that under Xi Jinping this crisis is being used in a way that is clearly being scripted and managed to offer a vindication of the idea that the party should be in control of everything and so particularly at the local level in Wuhan I'm sure across everywhere in China now probably even more so than during the SARS crisis, it's the local party apparatus and local local party activists who are acting as the grassroots enforcers of policy. And perhaps even more so than during SARS, you're seeing that that political apparatus is playing a much stronger role in how policy is enforced. So we see now, that, of course, these leading groups from the centre downward are very much playing a key role in how policy is enforced. So I think what will come out of this is is some paradoxical moment where the public here may be more sceptical of some of the party's promises at the same time that the leadership is using this to offer the view that the revived Communist Party under Xi Jinping has demonstrated its mettle, has demonstrated its capacity to carry the country through a severe crisis. In a way, pitting um, the party against the people... Well, uh, pitting the party against certainly a good number of people who will come out of this crisis much more sceptical about the role of the party. I think it's probably true even in the midst of this crisis that a good number of Chinese people uh, still accept the dominance of the Communist Party, don't necessarily agree with all its views, but don't see any alternative. Well, in fact, the party is really the people's only protector now, even though they may have made some mistakes. There's nobody else that can clean this mess up. So in a certain sense, just as the people are dependent on the party because there's no other alternative uh, before the uh, epidemic, they're more dependent on it than ever because they've got a a menace right inside the city walls and there's nobody else uh, mandated or with sufficient resources to take it on. That is true. One thing you do see at the local level in Wuhan is that uh, certainly the party apparatus is playing a more important role now. I think in in the initial days after the shutdown, uh, the city certainly didn't fall into Hobbesian anarchy, but it did seem the local government apparatus, even the local police, really retreated because they weren't quite sure what to do. And a lot of people, of course, were and are still very afraid of going out on the streets including officials and police officers. Now, they seem to be regrouping their forces now, and they do seem to be more active, much more present on the streets. But there is another side to all this, which what you you do see is some communities 
are getting very frustrated that their local com neighbourhood committees aren't doing enough, aren't effective enough. And you do see groups of neighbours connecting, especially on WeChat and saying, you know, bugger this, we're going to organise ourselves. We need to organise food deliveries for the old people in the compound. Uh, you do this, I'll do this. We need to make sure that people's pets are taken care of. You do this, I'll do this. So there is a certain element of self-organisation here that runs counter to the narrative that people are, are paralysed and entirely dependent on the party for response. Now, it is true at a, at a higher level, above the community level, then, of course, there's no solution uh, to this crisis that doesn't involve you know, government involvement and, in that sense, the party in some way. But the local level, it does seem to be a very interesting story of a sort of self-organisation going on at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me a bit of Luigi's Tomba's work, but what happens when that's under stress? I and mean, one thing he writes about in these gated communities is that it's often not just the neighbourhood party who's involved, but also these sort of property management agencies. I mean, is what have, what's their role been in uh, responding to the virus? Oh, um, now that that's going to be a dissertation for Luigi's uh, students in the years to come, uh, because it's really fascinating to see, even in Wuhan, it seems there's a lot of variation between how much the party committee is involved and how much our property managers have become involved as well. And so, especially in the newer in the newer districts of the city, where the old party neighbourhood committees probably aren't as strong property managers have had to take up much more of the role and sometimes they've fumbled a lot. And that's why perhaps we've seen these quite serious outbreaks on the edges of the cities in places where they really shouldn't have risen so quickly. Um, I'm really interested in this kind of very complex web of so, uh, controls and movement restrictions that have been placed on the population. I mean, I, I guess I have two questions. In Chris, how is that playing out on the ground? And in the long run, is that likely to sort of solidify government's control or, or undermine it in a way that people have all this time and nothing to do? I, I should say one paradoxical thing about Wuhan, at least, is it's been relatively, I say relatively easy for residents to step out here to do their shopping, to go out for a little bit of exercise, uh, to pop down to the local clinic if they have to. Uh, I think because the entire city has been considered a suspect uh, infection case, uh, some of the controls weren't as extreme as other parts of the country seem to have enforced. Now, I should say in the past few days, for example, residential compounds around here have started tightening up a lot on letting people out. So whereas before you could go out fairly freely to do your shopping if you wanted to, now they're saying that people have to stay indoors uh, and, and apply to leave and only one member of the household can leave for shopping every two days or rules like that. Now, all of that said, it's, it's, always, it's, it's been striking from the beginning in Wuhan how all of these um, reported policies and measures they always seem to be honoured in the breach somehow, somewhere in different parts of Wuhan. Uh, the way in which different districts and different neighbourhoods have been enforcing these policies actually seems to, to, to vary quite a bit. For example, I'm, I'm on, the, on, the, on the Wutong side of the city, on uh, one side of the Yangtze River, which is fairly developed and middle class around here. But if I walk over to the other side of the city, especially in the older districts of Hankou, these uh, wonderful little winding alleys of older homes, 
uh, at least as of a couple of days ago, there were still a lot of people on the streets there uh, stepping out to do their shopping and so on. Certainly not, not as crowded as it would normally be. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's changed a lot in the past couple of days. But even so, you do find that there's a lot of variety at the local level in enforcement of these policies, even in somewhere like Wuhan. And Orville, I mean, how do you see the longer term impact of this sort of authoritarian moment where we're really seeing this techno authoritarianism being played out, you know, whether it be sort of speaking drones, telling people to wear their masks or or down to, you know, neighborhood committees stopping people from going out. Do you think in the long term this will strengthen the government's control over its citizenry? Well, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, even before the epidemic began, we did see Xi Jinping elaborating what I think was a form of techno-authoritarianism that even George Orwell would not have been able to imagine on his worst nightmare. But I think now they have an actual logical reason to ramp it up even further. If they ever had a, a good cause to bring out the, the most strenuous forms of control, it's now. So we may actually see this epic sort of story of trying to control this epidemic as being a sort of a Petri dish for a form of authoritarian controls and social mobilization, surveillance, all of these things which we saw uh, you know, fragments of before uh, that, that, that come together to create a new form of, of, uh, of uh, sort of autocratic government, the likes of which we've never seen before. So I, I did want to finish that thought that Orville took up. I, I do think it's true that what we're seeing across many areas of China now is the government using all sorts of novel technologies to collect information on people real time, putting up swipe codes everywhere so that people are supposed to register when they move between different areas. But the other side of this that get, can get a little lost in some of the reporting is that collecting this inf information, enforcing many of these controls relies on uh, not just technology. You know, what we've seen in many ways, especially the grassroots, is an extraordinary illustration of how grassroots government in China still very much relies on local mobilization, political mobilization, uh, the grassroots party organisation acting in ways that have you know, strong echoes with the Maoist past in terms of how they mobilise and how they sometimes overreach as well. So there, there is that side of this um, emerging form of power in China that can get lost a little time. It is using new forms of technology, but it is also embedding them in these uh, forms of control that go back many decades. Uh, the, the other lesson from all of this too, I think, is... There were supposed to be monitoring systems and controls in place that were there to detect viral outbreaks like this to begin with. And if those forms of surveillance and monitoring had actually been working and acted on, uh, then it's quite conceivable that this viral outbreak could have been curtailed much sooner and much more effectively. So we see there also an illustration of how even when the government does have these capacities for monitoring, it's also a question about whether political leaders and whether bureaucracies have the capacity to act on those signals. Chris, just thinking of the economic side of this sort of um, huge mass mobilisation that, that seems to be affecting uh, you know, upwards of 700 million people, 
Um, could there be an economic effect there whereby, um, if you like, the province and the centre may be sending different messages um, about is it safe to go back to work now and and the you know the, the possibility that people are not going to return to normal um, as soon as the central government might like? Yes, I know. I think it, it is leading us to think that the restrictions so far are much tighter than they were back in SARS. That's certainly the the message I'm getting from my colleagues that cover the transportation and logistics sector, they're, they're just not seeing any movement at all. And they don't expect restrictions to be fully lifted now for some time, even if it's pretty clear that uh, vir the virus is contained. And I think that does have long run effects. And I, I go back to Orville's point earlier about decoupling. The multinational companies were already starting to rethink their supply chains in China because of US trade and technology tension. This is only likely to, to make them think even harder about that. It's not because these firms necessarily think that viral outbreaks are going, going to become more common in the, in the future. But I think it's stress testing uh, China-centric hub-and-spoke trade model. And I think we're starting to work out that it's incredibly fragile and it's vulnerable to decisions by China's central government and local governments that can close down large parts of certain sectors. And I think some firms are probably going to think that they need to diversify those risks. And that might mean in the future, we start to see some activities that had been taking place in China uh, move to other countries. And Sean, how do you read those kind of mixed messages that are coming out when it comes to sort of predicting forwards the economic cost of this? I mean, does that actually kind of underline some of the political economic risk, the fact that there are really conflicting imperatives uh, across provinces and cities and townships. It seems right now that I think that the government's priority for the coming years is going to have to be increasingly domestic. I, I think what I mean, Chris probably has, has seen this real time in, in Wuhan, but the Chinese healthcare system has clearly been stressed, as any healthcare system would be with an episode like this. But it, I think it underscores the extent to which social safety nets, the healthcare system in China uh, still exhibits huge gaps, it's still probably not serving um, all communities in a fairly equal way. And perhaps some of the policy priority will shift away from these very sort of externally focused uh, developments like the BRI towards more prosaic issues, like ensuring that people have um, social insurance should they encounter difficulties with their health or with their job, uh, having the local healthcare system being able to deal with emergencies that perhaps are a little more extreme than you would normally get. Um, and that's going to require, I think, a tremendous amount of reform because at the moment China's not set up to deal with that. Just as, as an example, local governments we know uh, don't have that much revenue, um, which is why they're having to sell a lot of land to property developers to plug their financing gap. If we were to see this greater social safety net, more spending at the local level to deal with these sorts of issues, we're going to have to see a tremendous fiscal reform. And that's going to take a lot of policy efforts and probably will take the focus away from these areas like BRI. Mm. And I mean, BRI is very much Xi Jinping's signature initiative. Um, but one thing that may, I guess, eat away at his um, his trust is this new timeline that seems to be emerging, Chris, um, whereby we know that it, we now know as early as January seven, 
Um, he reportedly gave instructions for fighting the virus, but the shutdown of the cities at the centre of the outbreak didn't happen until January 23rd. Um, and the propaganda machine really seems to be flip-flopping to make sense of his role. One minute he's, you know, staking his political leadership on tackling the virus, then he disappears, now we're hearing a buzz about an impending people's victory. I mean, what do you make of this official messaging? And should we read anything to the, the cancellation of the, uh, the two meetings? The release of Xi Jinping's February 3 speech over the weekend was very puzzling and extraordinary. The, the tone in this February 3 speech is, is quite defensive in some ways. He goes to st- some lengths to explain what he was doing early on uh, to address this outbreak. And almost inadvertently, it seems, he reveals, as you say, that on January 7, the Politburo Standing Committee had already discussed this issue and he had issued instructions about it. The, the really puzzling thing to me about that is that at that point on January 7, officials and Chinese medical experts are still all saying repeatedly that this virus seems to have no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. And therefore, the implication is that any outbreak is likely to be quite limited. Uh, so the question to me is, if that's the case, why does this relatively localised problem go right up to the Politburo Standing Committee? Now, we do know that uh, Xi Jinping has earned the title of chairman of everything, but <laughs> if this virus is, is attracting the centre of top leaders in, in one of their standing committee meetings, why is that? What, what was the trigger of concern at that point? And also, what instructions went down after that? And we do know that in the days after that, Leaders in Wuhan and Hubei, for a number of days there, for a week or so, were reporting that there'd been no new infections in the city. Now, quite a number of people, including quite a number of residents here, believe that there was some sort of systematic effort to hide any new infections. Irrespective of whether that's true or not, it's it's certainly true that over that period that the local leadership here was putting its best face on what was happening. So all of that does raise questions about Xi Jinping's role and the central leadership's role in all, all of that. And I think this probably comes back to your big question again about is this China's Chernobyl? Um, I, I guess my, my immediate answer to that is, is no, it is China's coronavirus 2020. And there are certain an- analogies that you could draw, but there's also many differences as well. And China's economy may have all sorts of problems, but it certainly seems much healthier than the Soviet economy was at that time, as does the Communist Party apparatus in some ways as well. At the same time, I'm, I'm not quite sure I would agree with Orville in calling this a sort of, or suggesting it might be a sort of an end of dynasty turning point, but it does certainly feel like a turning point. And I, I guess what I would think of it as at the moment is I think what we might be seeing is sort of the end of the high noon of Xi Jinping's new era of of power. And that doesn't mean that he's heading out the door by any means. I think he's still an extraordinarily powerful leader. I think what it does mean is that confident sense of invulnerability that Orville was also talking about is now in question. And that's going to provoke all sorts of uh, political responses not necessarily liberalising political responses either. And I, I think the other implication of this, and this also comes back to something Sean was talking about, is that we have to remember that when Xi Jinping came to power in 2012 and in the years afterward, 
His message to China was that he had brought China into a new era, and it was an era of strength and security. So what he was promising the Chinese people was not merely ec economic prosperity, but security as well. And I think because this, uh, this epidemic so flies in the face of that promise and is such a grave challenge to that promise of untroubled security, that it is a very troubling issue for the party leadership to deal with. And it will have political ramifications that, that extend onward right up to the next tra uh, leadership transition. That question that Sean raises of the balance between the high-flying promises and rhetoric of the central leadership and addressing the prosaic needs of Chinese people at the local level is going to require rebalancing of fiscal and policy priorities that is going to have uh, significant political implications. I, and, you know, I think just to add to that, I, I think that, uh, of course, what happens within China uh, may be very different from what happens between China and the world. So if there is a kind of a end-of-dynasty feel about some of this uh, within China, I think also there's, a, there's an analog uh, in the world at large. I mean, you look what's going to happen to the cruise industry. Look at the airline travel industry. Look at the luxury industry. I think people uh, abroad also have a kind of a sense of China now being the land of the black swan events, perhaps uh, having a, a somewhat more uncertain view about going to China, being involved with China, trading with China, all of these things, which I think could have a, uh, a, an economic effect, which would take some time to remedy. And Sean, do you think that this is going to have an impact on China's massive sort of infrastructure push, the Belt and Road Initiative? Do you think that there's going to be a pullback on that now? I think in, in terms of overall growth, the impact is probably limited in the sense that uh, we don't think that this is going to significantly degrade China's economy over the medium run, so long as we see some type of rebound starting around the second quarter. I think what it will do, though, maybe is, is change the way policymakers respond to shocks. Um, and we've started to see this anyway in, in recent years. We've known, of course, that since the global financial crisis, uh, the central government has always been very keen to ensure that whenever a shock hits the Chinese economy, stimulus comes out very quickly to ensure labor market stability. But this comes with very large costs in terms of debt and financial vulnerabilities. I think going forward, we're going to start to see perhaps a little bit more flexibility, a, more of a recognition that shocks are natural and growth goes up and down and you can't manage everything. And uh, that, I think, is a, a healthy development because the more that we see Chinese policymakers accepting that there is an economic cycle, that uh, unemployment does go up and down, and you focus on things like social safety nets rather than making sure that everybody has a job at all times, um, then we get a healthier economy. It's probably going to be a somewhat more volatile economy um, from month to month, but that's going to be healthy for China's long-run development. I mean, Orville, can I ask you about one of the more interesting responses we've seen within China um, to the epidemic from Tsinghua University professor uh, Xu Zhangrun? And he wrote that the epidemic, quote, 
revealed the rotten core of Chinese governance. The fragile and vacuous heart of the jittering edifice of state has been thereby shown up as never before. And he called on the Chinese people to, quote, rage against this injustice. Let your lives burn with the flame of decency. Break through the stultifying darkness and welcome the dawn. I mean, are these sort of foolishly brave and at times mocking words um, likely to have an, an impact in China? Well, I think it, it, Xu does certainly express a level of frustration among a group of people. However, I also think that, the, I mean, the government uh, is in a very difficult place and it is doing everything it possibly can. And it has many tools to bring to bear to control this uh, epidemic. So I, I don't think you want to read uh, Xu Jiangrun's uh, essay, which is very masterful and elegant and I think worth reading as a kind of an expression of sort of overall sentiment, uh, because it is very dark and it's very critical. And uh, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, as uh, Chris pointed out, uh, uh, she still does have some cards to play. He is a leader of substance, despite his weaknesses that have been man manifested in this particular uh, challenge. I think what you do see in public sentiment across many people in China now is a view and understanding that even if the problems of the cover-up of the virus to begin with were at the local level in Wuhan and Hubei, uh, the priorities and the habits of power that led local officials to act in that way very much reflect the priorities of the central leadership now, in which secrecy and control are such a priority. So this epidemic has implications not just for the specific leaders such as Xi Jinping, but also for those political priorities as well. I think you can be sure that next time that there's any outbreak or incident like this, the government will again face a great deal of scepticism from the public and questions about whether officials are hiding things because they're giving more priorities to security and control than they are to public well-being. So I think you know one of the implications here is not just for Xi Jinping's power, but how he addresses those particular uh, political priorities as well. I think it's really interesting that both Chris and Orville, you've talked about this as a point of inflection, a turning point, possibly an end of the high noon of Xi Jinping's era of power. I mean, Sean, in economic terms, what kind of turning point is this? That, that certainly is, is something that we've been thinking about for a while anyway. I'm not sure the coronavirus is, is going to necessarily accelerate a trend that's been underway for a while anyway, which is in a sense China trying to do everything by itself. Um, and we've seen the impact of that approach, you know, made in China 2025, um, the ability of SOEs to uh, bully foreign partners sometimes to try and get their, foreign, their technology. And, and what that's led, of course, is to a decline in, in foreign direct investment from trading partners overseas into the Chinese economy. We always worried that that ultimately would slow growth over the medium term. Whether this episode accelerates that process or not, we'll have to wait and see. But I think, again, if we go back to the view that China is the hub of this hub-and-spoke trade model across Asia, and you're continuing to see these shocks in China that are very difficult for multinationals to cope with, then you may see some more of that diversification. That means less technology in China, and ultimately it means certainly less growth. And is there a danger that this is pushing China into an isolation, the decoupling effect, the travel restrictions, the political uncertainty that we might see uh, 
almost like a cultural revolution era sort of shutdown of borders and people and ideas. It, it could well be that policymakers take the wrong lesson from this and decide that more centralization is needed. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. The other alternative, of course, is that they recognize that they can't control everything and they, they have to allow um, local authorities, they have to allow the market to absorb some of these shocks over time and, and they should focus more on the things that government is good at, the things that government should be doing, which is focusing on things like social insurance and the healthcare system, rather than trying to direct lending all the way through the economy and trying to manage supply chains. That's usually best left to the corporate sector and the private sector. But we'll have to wait and see. Certainly since uh, 2011, 2012, we have seen a push towards more state control, more party involvement in economic decisions. Whether this is enough to shake that trend, uh, I think it's too early to tell. I, and, you know, I think just to add to that, I, I think that, uh, of course, what happens within China uh, may be very different from what happens between China and the world. So if there is a kind of a, uh, you know, a, a kind of an end of dynasty feel about uh, some of this uh, within China, I think also there's, a, there's an analog uh, in the world at large. I mean, you look what's going to happen to the cruise industry. Look at the airline travel industry. Look at the luxury industry. I think people uh, abroad also have a kind of a sense of China now being the land of the black swan events. Uh, and, you know, uh, perhaps uh, having a, a, a somewhat more uh, uncertain view about uh, going to China, being involved with China, trading with China, all of these things, which I think could have a, uh, a, an economic effect, which would take some time to, 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 to remedy. Hmm. But I mean, I guess what I want to get at is the idea of public sentiment. I mean, it's very, very hard to measure in China, but we see, um, you know, names being written in the snow, songs being sung, uh, and and Xi Jinping in places being mocked, which is one thing you know an, an autocrat never never stands for. I mean, uh, it's very hard to gauge sentiment, but it, it could this be um, drifting against him? Well, it's, I think there's no doubt about it. However, you want to measure it, it is a in point of inflection. I don't think. It represents the end of the Xi Jinping dynasty, but I do think it represents a torpedo right through his bow of fairly monumental proportions that are not, it's not going to be easy to repair and just steam on. And, you know, I think we see in this, in Xi Jinping's response, some of the real limitations of his sort of global vision. Now, uh, I mean, one could imagine that as this thing broke and they became aware that it was re a real challenge, I mean, Xi Jinping could have said, listen, I gave a speech in Davos a year ago uh, that, that China was going to be a global player of consequence and a responsible one. This is a global problem. The, the, the metaphoric example of why we're all in this together. I want to call together a meeting of all the consequential powers to build some sort of a system to confront pandemics. And I want to do that because we're all in this together, even though it started in China. And I'd like to do that as a way to set a template, perhaps to deal with problems like climate change. Now, if he could have done that, admittedly, this is a bit of fanciful, but he would have transformed himself, I think, uh, relieved himself of some of the problems that we've been speaking of here as a leader and transformed himself into a global activist of the highest order. And whatever happened in China, I think, 
come out with some uh, with with some greater strengths rather than just greater weaknesses. Many thanks to our guests, Orville Shell, Sean Roche, and Chris Buckley. And also thanks to my co-host, Louisa Lim. I'm Grant Smith, and you've been listening to The Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Background research was by Julia Bergen, editing by Andy Hazel. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.